Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Prep for Psalms. Come, let us worship. And this session will be on Psalm 19 and Psalm 21. I am on page 34. And we'll just have a very brief um, comment to get going. Psalm, let's talk about Psalm 19. And you can, um, oh, I have this to say. <laughs> um, you can decide how you want to put this. But this psalm points us to God's general revelation of himself in creation. And then it points us to the specific revelation of himself through his word. And then it directs us to reveal ourselves um, to ourselves and to him as we pray to be forgiven for hidden sins. And as we pray that our words and our heart will be acceptable to him. So that's, um, we could look at this psalm as just having two parts, but it really has three parts. General revelation about God, specific revelation about God, and then let's have our hearts revealed to, um, to ourselves and to the Lord <clears throat> so that we are acceptable to him. And um, that's not written down in any of on the page anywhere. You are free to ask ladies to share their responses to this psalm, um, their reflections, questions, prayers, or praise. Um, I wouldn't get too long with it, but um, it is a beautiful psalm. And if they have questions, say, great question, and I hope that it is something that will be answered as we go forward. I would not try to answer questions now. Just let those be like, great question, thanks for sharing. Or the comments. Um, whatever they might say. Uh, just don't don't get bogged down in that responsive beginning. Then at the bottom of page 34, the ladies were introduced visually to the poetic device called chiasm. And you don't have to really talk about that. I would just say the word. You were introduced to this poetic device called chiasm. And then you go to the top of page 35. With this understanding of chiasm, what is the key point of um, this verse, Psalm 19.1, which they had to have read at the bottom of 34 to know what verse I was talking about. So hopefully y'all are looking at the key point of Psalm 19.1. My summary is the work of God's hands, his creation, displays his glory. That's my summary of the point. Um, and then uh, just move on along. What are the very first words of the Torah? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I might not have written the whole verse out. And if they wrote more than that, that's fine. What do we learn about creation from Romans 1, 20? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen and have been understood through what has been made. So uh, Paul is telling us we can learn those 
um, specific things from creation. Wow, invisible. Well, we can know he has invisible attributes. We can know he has eternal power and we can know he has a divine nature because of the creation of the world, because we look at the, his creation. Wow, that's just kind of blowing my mind right now. So a fun question, hopefully, what are some of your favorite works of God's hands? We want to talk about that, but please make sure that you urge them to follow through with the second question here. How has God been revealed to you through his creation? So um, um, here's some of my thoughts just for fun. Um, when I look at spiders, sometimes I'm like, yikes, and what'd you make that for? And, um, or some of the yucky bugs or critters that I don't like. And I have also realized that, well, the very, um, me looking at something and saying, God, what'd you do that for? Just directs my thoughts to God and that his wisdom is beyond mine. He has reasons that I don't understand. His creativity is, um, infinite. So, um, they make me, even when I don't like something in his creation, and I know that's not the favorite work, but it's, it's how he makes me think about who he is. I like studying things, um, very closely. I have found that if I look at seashells, I begin to just say, wow, there are no two seashells that are alike. They all, they look alike sometimes, but they're really different. If you look closely, I've discovered that about little bitty pieces of moss and rocks. Um, then let's get big. Like I like the planet Saturn and the rings around Saturn, the earth itself. When you understand how God has orchestrated it precisely for life on earth. Um, I, that, that shows his, uh, his creativity, his precision, his care for man, um, a particular purpose. And, um, then, um, I've been to Niagara Falls. That has reminded me or shown me a never ending flow and makes me think of God's never-ending grace. And um, at the, on the trip where I saw Niagara Falls and I saw a glacier, and I was like, well, let me apply the same question to a glacier. What do I? What does a glacier make me think about God? And I involved um, my daughter and daughter-in-law in that conversation, and they had some good things to say. And we thought about God's power and his transforming power and um, there even could be an aspect of how his wrath destroys things um, that are not um, in line with his holiness. So, um, have some fun and again, think about how God has been revealed to you through his creation. Then, moving on, David might have been reading Genesis and reflecting on its truth when he composed Psalm 19. What was the king instructed to do in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20? He was to write for himself a copy of the law in the presence of the Levitical priests. He was to keep it with him and read it all the days of his life to learn to fear the Lord and to obey him and that his heart wouldn't be lifted up and that he wouldn't abandon the law. So uh, meditate, read. Every day, that was uh, what the king was to do. 
I think you can skip the next two questions. They're they're really basic, and it's the meditate on Torah. Or you, the leader, can just say that we saw in Joshua one eight and Psalm one two that you know, um, not just the king was to meditate on God's law, but all God's people are to meditate on God's law, His teaching, His Torah, day and night. So, um, just for time's sake, just summarize and either skip those two questions or summarize them yourself. Now we get to the next question. Why copy, read, meditate on God's word? What does God's word do for us? List the description of the word of God from Psalm 19, 7 through 11. And what is the impact that it has on our souls? I think that you should go around the circle and just let people know, you know, if you can, we would like you to go around the circle. And if you don't have an answer, just say pass or skip me. That's fine. Um, leaders start and be the example. So the first one that is from verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect and it restores the soul and then go to the next person. So they'll have had a good example from you. Following along, I have the testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes one wise. The precepts are right and it gives joy to the heart the commandment is pure and enlightens eyes the fear of the lord is clean and endures forever and someone might be like that one doesn't make sense to me but we're going to get to that um judgments are true god's judgments are true and i also have notes um they're more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey and they warn us and reward us. Um, so, again, you're just going to go around the circle with that and ask a lady to name one thing that is a description of the Word of God from that passage in Psalm 19. We now want to consider what some of our favorite words of God are. And... I think it would be great if we could hear at least two verses for each of these questions. And if more ladies want to share, that's great. Um, and also, if you're in a group that is quiet, um, sometimes our evening classes are quieter or more hesitant to just speak. Maybe they've been at work all day. Um if there's someone that usually has their homework done and they'll eventually talk or share, you could call on them. Or if there's someone that you know is very comfortable sharing, you could start and call on them. So you might say, Judy, what scripture has revived your soul? And um, then um, after she shared, then can, would anyone else share You know, a scripture that has revived your soul? Because of the word revived, I kept thinking about Titus 3, 4 through 6, which says we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of explains our salvation. I have also Ezekiel chapter 1 because it's just brilliant. So it it's exciting. And I think that a revive, it gives me um, energy and uh, an effect. A reaction to the glory, to the beauty, to the majesty and power and mystery of God. And then Ephesians 3, 20, 21, 
He, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. And I've, um, that revives and energizes me and reminds me to give him praise for it. What scripture gives you wisdom? I have 2 Corinthians 12, 9. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in weakness. What scripture brings joy to your heart? John 15, 5. Jesus is the vine. I am a branch. And uh, he who abides in Christ will bear much fruit. Luke 24, 6. He is not here. He is risen. And I didn't write out the whole passage, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 talks about when Jesus comes back and we're gathered together to him. So I'm looking forward to that. That's a passage that gives me joy. On page 36, David used many different words to describe the written word of God. But what phrase did David repeat throughout his declaration and why is this important? So what phrase did David repeat? probably the same in every translation, but I didn't double check. But the phrase is, of the Lord. Uh, So all that is being talked about is what is of the Lord. Why is this important? The words that are all good and all that we see defined on page 36 are the words of the Lord. God's word is truth. It is reliable. His word is what we must turn to and depend on. So it's critical that we are seeing the um, precision and value of what comes from the Lord. It's kind of self-explanatory, but again, this is just reiterating the truth that must be declared among us who know the Lord and Um, trust him and read his word because the world around us is telling us that God's word is a crutch. It's not true. It's not reliable. It's old. It's out of date. And that's not true. God's word is true. It's alive uh, and it is necessary for right now today. So we looked at the six different words that David used to describe the word of the Lord And they are more than synonyms. So leaders, just for review, state law is the Hebrew word Torah. And just a reminder, it means ultimately the best summary of it is direction and instruction. So leaders just share that and and move on to the next. Who would do statutes? I think it's Edut. Um, I'm Yep, I think edut is the way you say it, but however they say it is fine. I have testimony, ordinance, warning, and then precepts, picud, a thing appointed, a charge. Commands is the Hebrew word mitzvah or mitzvot. They might have, that would be plural. And all I have is commandments. <laughs> so. That's not the way you're supposed to define a word, but I did not put anything else down. Fear is the Hebrew word yira, and here it is a noun, not a verb. We normally use this word as a verb, let us fear the Lord, and that's a verb. But right here, God's word is a, um, shoot, 
fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, or perhaps you could think of it as a fear of the Lord is clean and pure. So when you are applying this word, it is the reverence and piety and um, I'm looking at my notes trying to understand what I was thinking when I wrote that it's, oh, well, it's clean and pure. So the word of the Lord and revering the word of the Lord is clean, it's pure, it's not tainted, and it's clear and actually you could say objective because to look at something with a um, not a subjective opinion, but a, an objectivity that makes it pure. So the word of God has been given to us by the Holy One, God, and it is totally right. So when we are obeying it, considering it, it is clean and pure. And I'm kind of rambling right now, and I'm sorry about that, but I was trying to get my mind around this um fear of the Lord as a noun and then the impact of what David said about it. So it's kind of talking a lot. The next, you don't have to do all that. <laughs> so um, regarding ordinances, it's the Hebrew word mishpat and it's judgments or a verdict. And um, that is at the end of the box on the next page. So I was, um, I don't think that you need to read the box because they can read it for themselves. And I know for me, after I did the homework and worked through the definitions and then read the box, I'm like, okay, good. This summarizes it all and helps me understand it. So they've had an opportunity to spend time with that themselves and process it. So we're not going to hang out in the box. Under the box, highlight, all of God's word is to be obeyed because it is authoritative, inerrant, and absolutely binding. And those three words, I just want you to emphasize them. I don't mean we have to talk about them, but that's something to say and declare again. Next question. What is David's response to his own description of the written revelation of God? Look at verses 10 through 13. He says, it's more desirable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And they warn and reward. And they prompt self-examination and obedience. I'm not sure if I got ahead of myself with that self-examination and obedience. Do you share the same response? What evidence is there in your own life that indicates that you see God's word as precious and obedience to it rewarding? Before you read that question, you probably should prepare the ladies. You know, we have a personal application question here, and this is a good thing for us to talk about. So uh, we, would, we don't want to put you on the spot, but we would really like you to share some comments here. And again, sometimes ladies feel like when they would actually say something, it, it's not going to sound prideful. It's going to be encouraging to each other unless they were convicted and they're like, uh-oh, there's not evidence in my life. And they may share that. And so this would be, well, this is why we're in Bible study. And But being in Bible study and being right here is evidence that you are 
seeing it um, as important to know. So if anybody is kind of down on themselves, you can encourage them just because they've they've done their homework. They're here uh, to talk about it. <clears throat> so my answer to this question is that God's word is precious to me. And in my house, it's evidence because I have many Bibles. I have them um, in almost every room. And then I have many translations and I've read it in many translations and I keep reading and I keep studying and I keep expecting to um, have fellowship with the Lord from his word. I do trust his word and um, obey it and I'm convicted when I don't obey it. I believe his word and then... Um, let's see. I kind of just went on and on. <laughs> God's word is personal and intimate and necessary. Next question. We see in Psalm 1914 that David was praying and I asked him to write out that verse as their own prayer and they may have just written the verse out, which is pretty much what I did. So I just want to hear this verse, whether you've um, put it in your own words or if you have written the verse out um, strictly according to what the, the scriptural words say. But we do want to hear it, what, it, what it says. What's the gist of Psalm 1914? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. In the middle of the next paragraph, theologians describe Psalm 19 as a psalm teaching that we can know something about God from his general revelation, which is creation. But we can only correctly understand that general revelation through the specific revelation of God, the written word, the Bible. So um, when we look at the whole Bible, we see that David, I mean, Jesus helps us know that David is actually referring to the whole of scripture in his comments. David had the Torah and then David wrote this psalm about it. Um... And then Jesus gives us the context that the Holy Spirit through David is talking about all of Scripture. So David didn't have the rest of the Bible and all these prophets to read. Um, that's another thing that I'm pondering in the moment right now. Like, David was talking about the preciousness of the first five books of the Bible. But what did Jesus say about the scriptures? And he's referring to the Old Testament, isn't he? God's word does not abide in you if you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. And in the scriptures, you will find eternal life and they testify about Jesus. So Jesus was actually calling out the Pharisees and his words to them are saying, you're not doing what you should be doing with the the Old Testament, with the scriptures. And here's, here's what you should be finding in them. But you don't even believe that I am God's son. So there is a rebuke 
in this passage to the uh, Pharisees, Sadducees. Um, but in that rebuke, we see truth about the Old Testament. And then I love Luke 24, 44, 45. All things written about Jesus in the law of Moses, Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms. Those are the three sections of the uh, Jewish Bible. These things must be fulfilled. And Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, that's the Old Testament. Um, on the next page, 38, you can point out the structure of the Psalms. And as you're doing that, just remind them like Psalm 1 is a Torah Psalm. That's a Psalm about the Word of God. That's a Psalm about Scripture. Psalm 2, a Messianic Psalm, is a Psalm about Jesus as King and Savior. So we see them side by side there. And then we've been looking at Psalm 19 about the Word of God. And we're about to see four messianic psalms together and then when we get to psalm 119 we have a, a torah psalm that's that long one that's um every single verse is a statement about god's word and then it's followed by a group of messianic psalms so we're just uh highlighting bringing attention to the structure of the book of psalms and then we'll end this lesson of Psalm 19 with in what way does Psalm 20 connect to Psalm 19? Look for the meditations of the heart and the work of the Redeemer. I think that you leaders ought to just close this uh, lesson with your answer. Um, <clears throat> what I have is that Psalm 20 is a call for the Redeemer and um, the Savior and help. And how did I... I you would think that I would have started with Psalm 19, right? But Psalm 19, I'm thinking it ended with. Maybe I wrote that wrong. And <clears throat> Maybe your answer is better than mine already. Oh, yes, I wrote it wrong. So Psalm 19, verse 14, ends with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So there's a looking to God to be my redeemer and then in psalm 20 there is a calling out for redemption may the lord answer you in the day of trouble may he send you help and may he grant your heart's desire so um and then we have that god is our trust and he will give victory so anyway that's how i see psalm 19 and 20 connecting it ends looking for a redeemer. And there's a little bit of that comment at the bottom of page 38. Psalm 20 opens with requests for help from the Lord. There is expectation, faith, hope, and confidence that the Lord will hear and he will deliver. And then we're going to Psalm 21. Now we're going to look at this messianic psalm. So Psalm 20, we're not spending any time on um, in this discussion Psalm 21 is, it is, Psalm 20 is Messianic. Psalm 21 is Messianic. And I think you can just jump right in and say, would anyone like to share your responses to this psalm? And I was like, hey, this is a great victory psalm. Um, joy and thanks and honor for the king. And I also just imagined, because it's fine to do this, to look ahead to when we're going to see Jesus and imagine 
reading, singing, praising Jesus with this um, psalm and applying it to him when he is sitting on the throne and um, he has reigned and conquered over. He's reigning and he has already conquered all his, his enemies. What specifically about the Lord is praised in the first and last verses? The strength of the Lord. And this is an inclusio, a literary device, and it sets the stage for a key concept for the whole psalm. The strength of the Lord. What about the strength of the Lord? What prophecy is given in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2.10? I kind of wrote all of it. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And you may know this, but it's always helpful to hear these reminders. When Hannah prayed this prayer, there was no king in Israel. She was praying that God would give her a child, or was she praying in thanksgiving that he had gotten her pregnant? <laughs> but Samuel's going to be born, and Samuel's going to crown Saul. Um, yeah, that's right, Saul. And then he's going to anoint David. So this is way before there is a king or any discussion of a king. So for Hannah to be praying, God will give strength to his king. She knew um, that that was in that I mean that's holy spirit inspired also deuteronomy had set the stage because it as we saw in the last lesson um god had said the king is to write for himself a copy of this law and when moses declared that god's word there was no king so these were looking ahead to the time when there would be a king so those are messianic prophecies in addition to being the prophecy of what would happen in Israel. The king, this is in the middle of the next paragraph, the king does not look to his own strength, but is shown in this psalm to depend on the strength of the Lord for his life, reputation, and his battles. That applies to David. So this Psalm 21 is to apply to King David and to the kings of Israel. It applies to Jesus as king, that he is dependent on the Lord. And if it's right for David and right for Jesus, it's right for us. So there's an example for us to follow. So now we have a question that could be uncomfortable for some people. Take a deep look at your own perspective. What are your own strengths that you might depend on rather than depending on the Lord? Some people might be like, I don't have any strengths, but yes, they do. And um, if anyone is like, uh, this is um, just hard for me to share, strengths are not bad, but what we want to do is make sure that we are not depending on ourselves, but depending on God to work through us according to how he has gifted us, given us skills, trained us, given us experiences. So... um, some strengths that I have to be careful of depending on would be making a quick decision because I can do that sometimes. Just look, and I have not prayed. 
Or if I think I'm creative, but I don't pause to let God lead to lead my creativity. I also don't want to depend on education, study, experience, but I want the Lord to lead me. I want to depend on Him. Um, okay, so just encourage ladies, but they... We're to yield and let God use our strengths and not depend on ourselves. On the next page, 40. In Psalm 21, the inclusio focuses our attention on the central verse of the psalm. So which verse is it that's at the center? And what does it say? It's verse 7. And it says, The king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. When you ask the question, I expect there will be a pause for ladies to get um, the nerve to say, and um, because some might not have been, they may be a little skittish. But my Bible has, um, Psalm 21 has 13 verses, so the math says that Psalm 7 is the central verse. <laughs> and um, there it is. If they, by the time you've asked it, they've read the next, and so they'll know what it is. Verse 7 is in the middle of Psalm 21. It's a definite reflection on the Davidic covenant, which was made between the Lord and King David. Please note the promises of the covenant as found in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I have a lot. Um... I think it might be easiest if you just ask for one lady to share what they got out of it. You know, um, could someone share the promises of the covenant? Go ahead and share all of them that you recorded. And whoever has written a lot of them will probably, hopefully, take it and do it. I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. This is God speaking. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And there is a phrase, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. So that part is not speaking about Jesus. Um. God's loving kindness will not depart from him. And to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. There are aspects of that covenant that cannot be fulfilled by a human. The forever part of it means somebody has got to come along that's going to be different. And who will be able to be on the throne forever. When you look at God's promises in 2 Samuel and you see what God had already promised, um, and because by the time God's speaking to David in 2 Samuel through, I think, I can't remember if that's through Nathan or not, um, we have the background prophecies of Genesis 49.10 and Numbers 24.17. And those will also be... Um, They're not able to be fulfilled by just any human. So what do the prophecies of the majestic king ruling over all the earth 
say in Genesis 40, 19, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I'm going to just not talk about this a lot because we could get off. So um, it, the scepter and the ruler's staff is indicating that a king will come and people will obey him. Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, meaning the house of Israel, the people of Israel. A scepter shall rise from Israel. There's a parallelism between those two things. Um, he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And I meant to look up the sons of Sheth and I forgot to do that. So I don't know what that's talking about. Um, crush the forehead of Moab. Moab was an enemy at the time. So God, I'm sorry, the Messiah, the king, is going to rule over everyone, all nations. Let's go to page 41. Let's look at how the king is described in Psalm 21. List the specific blessings that the Lord bestows on the king. The Lord's strength is bestowed on him. Salvation of the Lord is given to, to him. Jesus is, and I'm, this is a note that I just added. Jesus is able to save us because God made him Savior. Um, also in Psalm 21, he, the king receives his heart's desire. His prayers will be answered. There will be blessings of good things crown of fine gold the crown is honor and authority and there is life eternally and glory and splendor and majesty and salvation are his and he is most blessed forever and joyful in the presence of the lord i did have numbers of verses next to those but i wasn't sure at the beginning so um, that just followed through verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I pulled something out from every one of the verses. Which of these blessings could not be applied to an earthly king, but only the Lord's anointed king, his son? Eternal life, salvation's given through him, and he's most blessed forever. Two words are used in verse 5 to convey the stunning beauty and glory of the king. Those two words are splendor and majesty. And in other verses, they describe Yahweh. So let's understand what these words mean and understand that they are a description of God. They're a description of Yahweh. They're a description of Jesus. Splendor is the Hebrew word hod. It can be translated and mean majesty, vigor, authority, beauty, honor. This is a, a big word that has a, um, so much to it that the nuance is going to show up in context. But just, you know, splendor. Wow. Um, that word makes me think really of, of beauty. And then the word majesty is the Hebrew word hadar. And the Hebrew definition, I have ornament, honor, <laughs> splendor, 
magnificence, beauty, excellency. So um, majesty, you think of a king, you think of royalty and extravagance. The ornament part makes me think of the a glorious robe or outfit and crown and jewels and uh, beautiful throne and palace and all the things that a king um, has and enjoys because of the wealth that's given to him. So, but excellency is really great too because it's not just stuff. It's the character and the being of who he is. The three cross-references that are given have splendor and majesty in each of those uh, verses. So what do they say? And each of these is about Yahweh. First Chronicles 16, 25, 27. What does that say? Great is the Lord. Splendor and majesty are before him. He is to be feared above all gods. Um, Psalm 104, 1 and 2. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You're covered with light as a curtain. Psalm 111, 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord. Uh, Splendid and majestic is his work. So it's his work is splendid and majestic because he is. There was a point in time when the splendid and majestic king allowed himself to be seen in all his glory. How is Jesus described in the following passages? This is the transfiguration of Jesus. Matthew 17, 1 through 5. I said, his face shone like the sun. His garments were as white as light. He, um, God said to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It also says Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah. And um, if anybody's like, how do you know? Uh, One of our seminary professors has some fun. And he's like, well, don't you know they had name tags? But I also like, Jesus introduced them. He's like, hey, this is Moses. This is Elijah. I'm making that up. Um, Or maybe just making this up. Moses is holding kind of replicas of the Ten Commandments. And maybe Elijah's got a pet raven on his shoulder because the ravens fed him at the brook. Just just having fun with that. That's not the important part of that question. Jesus shone like the sun. And in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, Peter's referring back to that moment of transfiguration. They saw his majesty. And um, Jesus received honor and glory. And Peter says, we heard, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's more to this lesson, so if you have not been watching the time, you probably should uh, make a note. I've been talking a long time here. Um, So, on page 42, this is a reminder. Let's declare and celebrate. The great king, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, is a man, yet he is God. And only God himself, in the person of Jesus, can reign in righteousness and govern with true wisdom, and provide true peace and prosperity. That last phrase is going to lead us into the next question. You were to read Psalm 21, 8 through 12, and describe the future victory of the king. And what was the similarity to Psalm 2? I didn't do that part very well. but um, Verse 8, the hand of the king will find all of his enemies, and the enemies are those who hate him. 
Psalm 2, the enemies rise up against the Lord's anointed and God will, um, they will perish if they don't pay homage to the sun. Fire will devour his enemies at the pouring out of God's wrath. So I just said that about Psalm 2. That's very clear. And then from verse 10, the, their offspring will be destroyed. The offspring of the enemies of the Lord. Um, their plot against the king will not succeed. Uh, why did, Psalm 2, why do the people rise up against the Lord and plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? Um, so the victory is coming. It's guaranteed. Now we're going to look at future in the next two passages. According to Second Thessalonians, Thessalonians, you might want to say that out loud before you try to say it with your group. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Who will appear? Jesus will be revealed from heaven. What will he do? He will repay with affliction those who afflict believers. He will deal out retribution and um, they will have, the enemies will have eternal destruction away from the Lord. And why will he do that to them? Because they don't know God, they don't obey the gospel of Jesus, and they afflict believers. So what we're looking at is the future victory of the king, the Messiah. And then in the future, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 16, who will appear? Well, None of this was supposed to be a trick question, but I realized that the way these, um, like, who will appear, you might have written all of his name there. So if they put all his name, they might not be answering what is his name at the end. So just kind of pay attention to how they answer so that you're not being redundant and repetitive with the questions. I said, who will appear? One on a white horse. Someone might say, Jesus. Um, which is correct. The verse doesn't actually say his name Jesus there, but we know it is Jesus because of all of scripture pointing and telling us he's the one coming back. What will he do? He will judge. He will wage war. He will strike down his enemies. What is his name? Faithful and true, the word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has a name that no one knows. Next question. According to Psalm 21, 7, why has the Lord given the king his heart's desire and such abundant blessings? And why will he be victorious over his enemies? Psalm 21, 7, the king trusts in the Lord and through the loving kindness of the Lord, he will not be shaken. Um, there was an opportunity to look up verses and record a few which are meaningful to you. If you have time, ask ladies to share. Um, you know, well, Let's have a few of you share which ones of these verses were meaningful to you. If you don't have time, then this you could definitely you could skip this section. Um, let's close this lesson on page 43. We need the reminder that even the great king, the coming Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus, even he is completely dependent on the Lord for all that he is and does. And if Jesus is dependent and trusts the Lord, how much more do we need to be? And a verse just you could note is John five nineteen that Jesus says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I look at what the Father's doing and I do what he does and I do what he tells me to do. 
Um, and then you, leader, can summarize the word shaken because I mentioned that previously. Um, it means to, it's the Hebrew word moat. It means to totter, shake, slip. It's a metaphor for um, to be shaken is to be anx- anxious and uncertain. But what does Psalm 21, 7, how did you rewrite this and personalize it as a statement of your own dependence? Would someone please share how you wrote out Psalm 21, 7? Elizabeth trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, she will not be shaken. Or they could have said, I trust in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, I will not be shaken. Either way, that's great. So, um, maybe you want to end just together. Let's all read this last verse together. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. That's that's a lot of lessons, and I talked a lot, and uh, no telling what your ladies are going to talk a lot about, so um, you might want to make some notes of your time, and just remember to keep moving, and make some notes to yourself to look at what time it is as you're moving through the lesson. Thank you for your love for the Lord, and knowing that His Word is precious, and precious to be shared. God bless you. Thanks for listening. My in-depth Bible study workbooks on Job, Psalms, Ezekiel, Matthew, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Hebrews are available on Amazon. My coordinating lectures are available on my website and YouTube and other podcast episodes. I pray that God's word will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path.